thing we can do this morning. Glad you could be here on this patriotic weekend. <coughs> this morning we're going to conclude our series on different homes. And so we have come a long way in these since the week before Mother's Day as we've looked at these many different subjects. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Second Chronicles chapter number 7. Second Chronicles chapter number 7. When we look into this particular chapter, it's a verse, verse number 14 is what we will read this morning, that many have read and many have used on many a patriotic weekend or occasion in and around the church. Let me set the context before I read the verse and then jump into our preaching this morning. Solomon and the Israelites have completed the temple that David had laid in store for. God's glory had come down or fallen upon that place. And in verse number 12, God begins to speak to Solomon and Solomon alone. This is a message directly given to Solomon. There's a great truth that develops in this conversation, and that is this. If you will obey, there will be blessings. If you disobey, there will be a curse. The most astonishing part would have come if we read in verses 20, 21, and 22. How could someone who just saw the Shekinah glory of God settle upon the temple in the full manifestation for the people of God, how could he ever in his own mind think that he would turn his back on God? And yet Solomon, we find by the end of his life, did just that. The Bible tells us that the women of his life, those that he had married and those that he had taken as concubines in his life, the women had turned his heart away from God. That's the end of it. But in the midst or at the beginning, God says to Solomon, listen, I will make you and any person that will follow me a deal. Verse number 14 is that agreement that God makes. And as a nation, a nation built upon God and godly principles, we do well to learn from it this morning. Read with me verse number 14. The Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Father, help us this morning as we come into a moment in time of worship. We come to the word of God recognizing what it teaches us. Help us to obey and to understand. That we make proper application and use of the teaching and preaching this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The secret to verse number 14 of 2 Chronicles 7 is that of humility. If the humble will seek God, that humble seeking will lead to sovereign healing. Let me say that again. Humble seeking will lead to sovereign healing for a land. God will not answer a proud people. Sometimes in our land, we get a little too swollen with our own hubris, and we forget where real healing comes from, and it comes from Almighty God. Our founding fathers certainly did not confuse as to where their power was derived from, who it was who had appointed them to their hour. This verse is guidance given from God to his people and to particular Solomon. America is not promised healing. 
But the possibility doesn't exist for healing. That's what we must understand this morning as we consider our home. President Washington said this, It is impossible to govern the world without God. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly implore His protection and favor. Our founding father, our first president, understood wholly what this verse means and what it was teaching us. A great French historian, now that's usually not something we would say today, right, as Americans, but a great French historian, Alexis de Tocqueville, said this. Let, let me give you one quote so you understand who he is and why I love him so much. Here's what he said on another issue. He said, the American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money. He said that in the 1830s. And we find it today true ever more than it was in the 1830s. But here's what he said about the nation and America when he came and toured the nation just 40-some years after our founding. And he went back to France and wrote on the that which was great or what made America great. He says this, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Amen. He wrote. That is one French historian I can agree with. <laughs> the flaming righteousness he observed was just truth that was taught, that was preached with conviction from those pulpits. Not subjective truth, not your truth, but objective biblical truth that you can build your life upon. America's moral and increasingly America's material decline is because her pastors, her princes, and the people have all turned their back on God. Which is what God warned about when he spoke directly to Solomon. By the way, it came to its fullest fruition in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Jeremiah was told by God to write to the people of Israel. And it could be easily written to us as Americans today. Woe be unto the pastors. Now, the word pastors here is a very broad term of leadership. And it's in every facet of leadership. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. If we were to continue reading down in verse 11, it would say this, For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. In other words, those who led Israel, those who in the pulpit and in the political sphere led that nation, had led them directly away from Almighty God. And so his blessing could not rest upon them. Maybe I should say it even more clearly. His blessing would not rest upon them. Jeremiah's word for pastors here refers to the leaders. That is, home, governmental, and societal leaders. The leadership at every level of society and all corners of culture had failed and doomed his people. Does that not sound like our modern America? On every level. The people of this land have been failed by her leadership. President Washington also said this, the future of this nation depends 
on the Christian training of our youth. Amen. All of this points us to being vigilant and proactive in keeping our homes separated from the world and close to God through his word. We've studied in our series on different homes the need for Christian homes to be different. That was the reality. The reality of different homes, we noted in our first message, is that we must be discerning, dedicated, and then ultimately duplicating ourselves generationally. We also looked at the two roles in different homes, that of a role, the role of a man and a woman. And yes, there are two sexes, and there are only two genders, and God has designed them such. We must understand what our role is as a man. Ladies, you must understand what your role is as a woman. We studied then the different homes' responsibilities. We talked a couple different topics on this. The responsibilities that we have towards things of eternal value, those of an entertaining value, those of an ethical or ethos that we build our life upon, and then of an education. Finally, we dealt with our relationships in a different home, which included marital relationships and parental relationships, which we looked at last Sunday. So this morning, we close our study with the rewards of a different home. So if we do all of these things, what's the benefit? What's the plus? What advantage or benefit is there to me, you might ask? And the answer comes very clearly from the word of God. God gives healing to those who will humbly seek him. What then does God reward in that process of healing? How does that look like for a country, a culture, and a church? This morning, I want you to consider with me four rewarded beneficiaries when your home and my home and when Christian homes as a whole decide to follow God's design rather than Satan's delusion. And make no mistake, he is bombarding us with delusions as to how our homes should be lived. But the Bible has very clear descriptions that we've talked about over the last nine weeks and who we ought to be. We begin with the reward that is for Christ in our outline. The reward that is for Christ. Do you know, I hope you understand this morning, that your home lived by biblical standards actually brings a reward to our Savior Jesus Christ. We often look at heaven and getting there as a time for us to be rewarded. But the Bible teaches very clearly in the book of Revelation that those of us who will receive crowns, there's five to be one on this earth or that can be earned, but those who receive crowns, however many that we receive, in whatever fashion we receive them, we will be casting those crowns back down at the feet of Jesus Christ. So we understand that by choosing to live differently in this world, we are not rewarding ourselves, but we are rewarding our Savior for going to the cross of, Jesus, of Calvary, for dying for our sins. Amen. Amen. The verse that we use to begin this entire year's preaching and teaching was Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21. It says this, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Everything we do is for and in the name of Jesus Christ. Your home does not need to be changed so that you can live peaceably. That's a byproduct. Your home needs to be different from the world because it rewards Jesus Christ for going to the cross of Calvary. It's bringing him glory, as we'll see in just a moment. <laughs> a home that chooses to be different from the sinful world rewards
endurance Christ for his suffering and for his so great salvation. We find letter A, that glory that he received. God's guidance to Solomon is that he wants his people to seek him. We are his people if we know Christ as our Savior. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are his bride in waiting. It is through our free will obedience and the free will obedience of all in the race of mankind that God then receives the most glory. Let me ask a question that at least I want you to ponder for a moment. Does God receive glory in the obedience of the angelic realm? And we could say a modicum, because if they sinned, they were what? Cast out. We could read and study that Lucifer, when he sinned, took with him a third of the host of heaven. And so their sinful choice once was never redeemable. It was forever separation from him in his presence. And so the two-thirds of the remaining holy angels, the question is, does God get glory in them? And the answer is, he, glory, he gets glory in them in that they always do their job. But he gets the most glory from a sinful race who of their free will in salvation will choose to obey him. God is most glorified in that. Christ especially is most magnified in that truth and in that reality. If you were to continue reading or read the preceding verses to verse 21 of Ephesians 3, you would find that Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 19 say this, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. God is saying effectively there through the Apostle Paul, the fight is yours. And you can be strengthened by the Spirit of God in your inner man if you will freely choose to obey him and his word. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, you are most glorious in your earthly sojourn when you are all yielded or wholly yielded to him. The reward for your homes is in choosing to be separate, set apart from, different than the delusional world, is that you are rewarding the Lord Jesus Christ. You are glorifying him in all that you do and say. He receives the glory. Christ and the Father are rewarded with even more glory from obedient children. Second, we find the reward for Christ is not just glory, but generations. Can I tell you a secret? God wants more and more and more and more people to put their faith and trust in him. Amen. And the less your home resembles true Christ-like righteous living, the fewer people that will put their faith and trust in him. Well, I thought it was the church's job to go out and hand out all the gospel tracts and do the door knocking. The church has a responsibility to spread the gospel, but you are the church. It's you as a family. It's you as a home. It's wherever you go in every walk of your life that you, in your present generation of salvation, meaning you've trusted in Jesus Christ, in this present generation of your faith, to make sure that you go and show faith or saving faith to others so that they can be regenerated. That's the Bible term for it. 
regeneration. The problem in America is everyone is Christian. But not many are actually joint heirs with Jesus. It is a home in its different lifestyle, in its different choices, that lives by the Bible that will produce generational believers in Jesus Christ. Why are countless generations of children leaving the church? Because those children have watched lying parents. They watch parents who are duplicitous. They say one thing and they do completely opposite. A home that lives by the Bible will produce generational believers in Jesus Christ. What is your walk, mom and dad, teaching your kids? Because you might use the right words, but your life might be sending a different message. You find first beneficiaries, first rewarded with your home being actually different from the world, is Jesus Christ himself. He is granted glory and more and more that come by faith to him. The second reward is for the church this morning. As Christ is glorified by obedient believers in their homes, so the church is energized because of that obedience. And that's exactly what is told to us in the middle part of Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, 21. We find that there is glory to the Father by Jesus Christ, but that glory to the Father by Jesus Christ in the middle phrase says, in the church. So that means that when you live differently, there's a reward, there's a blessing, there's a healing that comes upon the body whole. Why are some churches dead or dying on the vine? And the answer is because there's no life in their family. There's no spiritual life in their family. And where there is no spiritual life, the reverse is true. There's no neutral in the Christian life. There is death. The reward of energy for the church is found letter A in grace. Some might not see this as a reward, but God's grace being continually poured out upon this place means his blessings are constantly upon us. Amen. I don't think there's too many of us that would say, I don't know if I want God's blessings today. It's a, you're foolish if that's how you think. You've lost your perspective in Christian reality. Having God's grace doesn't mean that we will have continual health and wealth. Sorry, those preachers are lying to you. If you were to go to Jeremiah 23, you would find they are called false prophets. They will lie to you for their own gain. I'm not here this morning to lie to you. I'm here to deliver truth to you. And that is this. God's grace does not mean that your life is always going to be hunky-dory. But it will mean we can endure any trial, and we can accomplish the will of God day by day. There's no better thing for a church to have than the full measure of God's grace manifest in her members. There's nothing better. So why isn't God's grace poured out more in churches around the world today? Simply put, because we are filled with our flesh and not filled with the Spirit of God. Members and families within a church seek to do Church and Christianity, their way, according to their own will. Take your Bibles and turn over with me to Colossians chapter number 1. We will find this truth laid out for us. Colossians chapter 1 
it tells us that Christ is preeminent. That's essentially what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And in telling them that Christ is preeminent, he comes to a kind of a closing thought in this first chapter, and he says this, speaking of the indwelling of Christ, he says, Who, now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul is talking about what he suffered on behalf of the church. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister. Paul says, I have been made a minister to the church according to the dispensation of God or the stewardship of this age of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to the saints, to whom God would make known, notice this is grace, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? In other words, what God wants for us to know and to demonstrate is his grace and more of his grace. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who we preach, Paul says, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the fullness and stature of Christ. Grown-up Christians in the grace of God. Whereunto, Paul says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. He said, I want the grace of God to permeate, penetrate, and then pour out of my own life for you. That was Paul's desire. We understand, then, the grace that saves us is the grace that sanctifies us from the world. And it is the grace that then motivates and animates our service for others. We should be ever increasing in a life of grace and ever deepening in an experiential knowledge of that grace. And may I say to you as a church family, we have many homes that do that. This week I received a, a letter, a card to our church family from a family outside of our church whom our church has benefited by extension. The letter is from Gary and Lou Foster, David's mom and dad. They write to us as a church family these words. Dear friends at Bluegrass Baptist, words are inadequate for us to convey our extreme gratitude for all the kindness you showered on our family and continue to shower on Stephanie and the kids during the loss of our son David. We will be eternally grateful to all who show David the path of salvation. God is good. We know David is in heaven, but please continue to pray for us as we navigate this world without him. We will continue to pray for Bluegrass as you take the message of salvation in a lost world. And then they finish by saying, thank you. In other words, your homes, in a different approach to life, want to minister grace to those who are in need. It's not just saving grace. It's saving grace sanctifying and serving grace. That is the reward of a healthy church. You care about one another. Amen. That's the goal. Each family that has helped has exercised grace to do so. The reward is that you are blessed for being a blessing and the church is strengthened as God's grace flows through us. A reward for the church with holy separated homes is the abundant grace of God flowing into our lives and then out through our living with one another. The second reward for the church is letter B, and that is growth. 
I can tell you, first and foremost, what a church ought to desire, ought to want as God's blessing, is God's grace. If we are not filled up with the grace of God, meaning we're not sanctifying ourselves day by day, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, if we are not growing in that grace, there is no other growth that's necessary. Because there's no other growth that will happen. We might be able to gin up a crowd, but we're not really going to be growing. You go and look at these progressive modern churches that entertain as their sole function. They might draw 800 people, but here's the truth if you will go and talk to them. And I have. Because as a pastor, I want to understand what the Word of God says. Here's what you will find. It will be over a 6 to 18 month period, a new set of 800 people. They'll bring in a new 800 and a new 800 and a new 800 and a new 800. And if there are true conversions, and I'm not saying there aren't in those churches. I'm always careful. But if there are true conversions, they are an inch deep as they are just a mile wide. And while they've received saving grace, there is sanctifying and serving grace that we must have. And so as we understand growth, then, there's a pattern to it. The book of Acts is our guidebook for church growth, and this morning as we consider our homes as a part of the church, I need to at least explain this. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, we'll trace through some of these verses and at least just read them or snippets of them as we go through. What you will find is a phrase that keeps coming up, they were added to, or were multiplied. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, the Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word, that's Peter's preaching on Pentecost, were baptized. In the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. If you went down to verse 47, you would find the last half of the verse says this, And the Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. If you were to skip over chapter 3 and go to chapter 4 in verse 4, you would see the Bible there says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. If you were to continue to chapter 5 and verse 14, you would find it says this, And the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitude, both of men and women. If you were to go to where the deacons are established in chapter 6 and verse 7, the Bible says this, After those seven men were added, and the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. There are two lessons on the reward of growth. For homes that will choose of their free will to be different, sold out wholly to God. There are two benefits of growth, and that is one, numerical growth. We grow in number. I put these in your notes. They grow in number. I I'm careful here. I understand there are hard regions and difficult places. We are privileged this morning to have Dayton and Justice going with us. They're like, oh, man, I didn't know you were going to call it that, Pastor. Their dad is one of my dearest friends of the whole world, Matt Goins, missionary in El Progreso, Honduras. And they're going with our teenagers to camp tomorrow. They're pumped, right? They're excited. But I'm more excited about what their mom and dad are doing in El Progreso. How many years has your dad been there? 17 years. Matt went to El Progreso not intending to be the lead pastor in that work. He was going to be a helper in that ministry. And something happened to the lead that he then had to step in. And when he stepped in, he just went about the work of making disciples, growing the church. A good and healthy church always focuses on growing the people. We grow spiritually, then we grow numerically. Once we've grown in grace, then we grow 
necessarily in number. You say, well, it's not a numbers game, Pastor. No, it is not. I can tell you, we started Bluegrass with two. We weren't a very powerful church. We weren't a very prominent church. But we were a church that was trying to do something on purpose for God's glory. The book of Acts has this statement that appears over and over. And his house or her house or they were added to the church. The idea in the book of Acts is that they grew numerically. But the second thing that I put in your notes there is that they grew not just in number. They also grew in influence. The early church leaders just went about doing God's work. In the chapter 2 reading that we gave earlier, that is at the heels of Pentecost. On Pentecost, they preached Christ openly. In chapter 4 and in verse 4, that is at the close of them offering the man at the beautiful gate the healing that he desired. And in the process of offering them that that uh, salvation from Jesus Christ, he says uh, very clearly in, in chapter 3, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. That's what Peter and John say to this man. It is in the heels of that, after they've met with the Sanhedrin, after they've been told not to spread the gospel. That setting, we find that they present Christ wisely. In fact, they tell us in chapter 4 and verse 13, that these men clearly had been with Jesus. There was something different about it. Aren't these ignorant and unlearned men? The growth in influence was beyond now just the Sanhedrin. There was turmoil that was called Saul who came upon the church. And even in the face of open persecution and torment, they proclaimed Christ competently and boldly. These homes with their leaders were different from the other homes without Jesus Christ. In other words, there was something attractive about their difference. So the question is, is there something attractive about the way your house is lived? Would your house look like everybody else's house? The church today has lost her influence in the community because there is no difference between the holy and the profane. At all. The homes of the church will look no different than any other homes in town. We watch the same movies. We listen to the same gutter music. We have the same gutter language that all of the other families in town have. Why would your neighbor look at you and say, there's something different about you? And the answer is far too many Christian homes don't look a lick different than the house next door. True Christian influence is when we live a holy, holy way. And I mean that in most senses of the word holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely, and holy, H-O-L-Y. When we live holy, holy, we make a difference in the world. By the way, I'm not asking you to be fanatically obtuse. Some of you say, I don't know that. What is on my calendar this week? Do I need to be using this thing? Do you know what I mean by fanatically obtuse? You do not need to go to your neighbor next door who is playing godless music and say over it, Hey, we don't like that godless music, you godless neighbor! You're going to hell! I'll be in heaven. Sometimes some Christians think that's how they have to live. There's no holiness in that. The Bible even tells us Jesus came not to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. 
Jesus didn't come down here wagging his finger at them. The only people Jesus ever wagged his finger at and corrected openly was the religious crowd because they already thought they were right with God and he needed to make sure they understood they weren't right with God. No, we don't need to be fanatically obtuse, but rather we need to be kindly compassionate, pulling some from the fire, making a difference as we go. Paul told Titus that God wants a peculiar people, zealous of good works in Titus 2 and verse 14. Peter wrote that we are to be peculiar as well in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. These men, by the way, were echoing God's plea to Israel four times in the books of Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Leviticus. He says to Israel that they are his peculiar treasure. He wants them to be different. Our Christian influence is not seen in our sameness with the world, but in our peculiarity from the world. Our views on life, that it has a beginning at conception, and that it has an end naturally, not one that should be ended artificially. We have views on sexuality, its purity. In other words, we do not believe that immoral living is okay with God. We do not believe it is right or acceptable. We also have clarity on what sexuality is. We have an understanding on morality, on ethics, divine justice, not social justice. We have an understanding of our relationship with our fellow man. Do you know it's Darwin who introduced us to racism? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, we are all of one blood. Homes that have biblical conviction will aid the church to increase our influence throughout society. But homes that live just like the world are just like the world. And there's no point in it. By the way, I'm convinced the young generation, the generation that's coming up right now into their 20s and mid-20s that, that are influencing and becoming, going to become the leaders, they actually understand this far better than we old obtuse, there it is again, 40-year-olds that know how the world works, or 60-year-olds that, well, I've seen it in my day. They actually want authenticity far more than older generations. I'm convinced of that. They also are suckered in by lies because they're not trained, knowledgeable, or knowing of the word of God. Grace and growth, numerically and influentially, are two rewards for the church that is filled with godly homes. There are rewards for Christ. There are rewards for the church. Then number three, there's rewards for the culture. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 59. We're going to read a lengthy passage. I think I have enough time. There's no evening service, so if I go wrong, please don't stand up and walk out. <laughs> Somebody one time asked me, you put the beginning time on the church service on the website, but you don't put the end time. And all I answered was, you're right. <laughs> Isaiah 59. The Bible says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But, here is the great truth in the word of God, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongues have muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity or emptiness and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth their eggs dieth. 
And that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. In other words, they are eating things that are killing them. They're consuming that which they're intaking into themselves. Their webs shall not become garments, uh, shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. There is judge, there is ju therefore is judgment, excuse me, far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. Man, that is a bleak culture so far. We roar like our we roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and in lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. By the way, that verse speaks, if you want to know my truth, of socialism. Conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Why? They are speaking oppression and revolt. Continue verse 14. Judgment is turned away backwards. Justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. In other words, if you're not going to involve yourself in this evil, we're coming to get you, they said. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. But there was no judgment, no discernment of what was doing. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. And his righteousness, it sustained him. By the way, there's a great pivot transition in verse 16. It is with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put upon the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. Accordingly, he will repay Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. That verse is speaking of when Jesus will come again someday. Verse 19, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the east, or the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And him that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, or your grandkids, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Israel's capture, just before their captivity, is identical to our modern American world. The cultures are identical. Culture is just how society thinks and behaves. Our current culture in America sounds very much like the first 14 verses of Isaiah 59. It is directly connected to the collapse of the, uh, of the biblical model of the home, both in Israel and, I would argue, here in the United States of America. Amen. He says at the beginning of verse number 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. No one would stand up and do what's right. Nobody. And I ask the same question of the pastor this morning. What keeps our home from standing up and living and doing that which is right? The answer is only our selfish pleasure-seeking world and our choices that please it and not God. 
Christ is coming again, and that is the ultimate salvation for mankind in verses 16 through 21. But he has come. And his body, the church, is now filled with believing homes who can be tiny intercessors for communities and our cultures. You and I cannot change the national culture by ourselves, but we can change the commonwealths in central Kentucky. We can change Georgetown. Here are two rewards for us this morning for a culture that has homes dedicated to living for Christ. Letter A, sanity. How many of you over the last three or four years have said this world has gone insane? Why? It's not my fault. Well, I think maybe it's time for Christian homes to stop and look in the mirror and make sure it's not our fault. We have to have sanity. And we remain sane as we are filled with the Spirit of God. There cannot be such a thing as your truth. It's the lie that the devil tricked Eve with in the garden. Why do we have such lunacy? The reason for the subjective truth is because for almost two generations, the biblical home has been attacked, maligned, and ultimately dismantled in this country. I put in your notes there, President Washington said this, the, propi the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right. And we have become that country. He finishes by saying, which heaven itself is ordained. Sanity is a reward to culture filled with godliness in their homes. We have banned God and transed our children. Because we have no understanding of absolute truth anymore. Because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Look, I do not want to walk around hurting someone's feelings. But I'm not going to be lived in a life dictated by their feelings. When it goes contrary to truth. We live in a culture that has lost its sanity because at the earliest ages we allow rebellion in the hearts and minds of children and do not correct it, as we looked at last week. I thought I'd read an excerpt from John Rosemond. I noted him last week, and uh, Karen McCracken was kind enough to give me the book Because I Said So, and I found a wonderful excerpt that fits perfectly in the sermon this week. So that I thought I'd read it to you as it pertains to the idea of sanity in this world and why we don't have it. Rosemont writes this in July 2nd for the page 184 of the book. During a break in a seminar I was conducting in Sacramento, a woman asked what I'd recommend she do concerning her 8-year-old daughter, who had recently taken to talking back in a provocative tone of voice. It's getting worse, she said. Twice during this past week, my daughter's actually cursed at me. You know, use swear words. I just don't know what's making her so angry or what to do about it. Being the intuitively brilliant psychologist that I am, I told this mother I was certain I knew why her daughter was angry. To wit. She was getting her way. I suggested to my petitioner that she continue making her daughter angry at least three times daily. What should I do about the cursing, she asked. What would your mother have done if you cursed at her, I answered. Ha, she replied, my mother wouldn't have put up with that for a moment. She'd have spanked me on the spot, then she'd have taken me to the bathroom and washed my mouth out with soap, then she'd have banished me to my room for the rest of the day, and then when my dad got home, I'd probably get another spanking. And would you ever curse your mother again? Absolutely not, she answered. And did you love and respect your parents? And do you think they did a good job rearing you? Yes, to both, she replied. And are you, emotion are you an emotional basket case today because of how they disciplined you? Oh, heavens no, she emphatically responded. Then the next time your daughter curses you, why don't you consider doing exactly what your mother would have done to you? She looked taken aback. But 
What? She stammered. I didn't think we were supposed to do that kind of thing anymore. Yes, I know. That's the problem. Culture is rewarded when Christians intelligently and appropriately teach and require their children and themselves to operate under the eternal rules of order and right, as President Washington noted. It will cure the culture of truth falling in the streets, as Isaiah wrote, of having hands that shed innocent blood be on every street corner, and of justice and equity being cast aside. It is by holding to the truth. Oh, it's hard when nobody else will. I know. That's what your culture is. Let her be spiritual. The reward for our culture is that we will again be spiritual. That could never happen. Buddy, that ship has long since set sail. As long as you have that attitude, it will be that way. Patrick Henry, one of our founding fathers and a good Baptist man himself, said this. My most cherished possession I wish... I can leave you is my faith in Jesus Christ. For with him and nothing else, you can be happy. But without him and with all else, you will never be so. Yeah. From our original text in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a humble people seeking God is a people who want to be and will be called by his name. We have far too many homes that are glad to be going to heaven, but are not too excited to be known as Christians right here and right now. There must be a desire to live in the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God, for the glory of God. The healing of our land that is most necessary is not economic, it is not domestic, it is not foreign, it is spiritual healing of our inner man. Period. The admonition of that verse is to Solomon as a man, and to each home individually. A different home produces rewards for Christ, for the church, for the culture around it, and finally, the rewards for the country. We read in the opening this morning, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We have preached in previous messages how the country's decline is directly linked to the destruction of the one husband, one wife, and any number of children that God chooses to give as a heritage family. We have made dad disappear from leadership and exempted him from responsibility. We have made moms bear a double curse as a helpmeet and a provider in the home and have given children leadership and control over the choices in that house. And it is a royal mess. But a different home is a reward to the country because it brings letter A, moral strength. Blessed, happy, is strong, joyful, abundant is the nation whose God is the Lord. It brings us strength and our founding fathers knew this well. President Washington said religion and morality are the essential pillars of civil society. President Adams said this. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality or religion. Or that means free from those two things. Our constitution, he concluded, was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to, govern, uh, to the government of any other. And we're finding that out today. Benjamin Rush, a fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence, said this, The only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be, to be aid in religion, or in other words, help or enhance learning religion. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object and life of all republican governments. 
Without religion, I believe that learning does real mischief to the morals and principles of mankind. Oh, what a quote for our modern government schools. Without religion, learning does real mischief to the morals and principles of mankind. But I'm sure Benjamin Rush is another person who's probably been canceled by the woke culture. Because what he said was true. It brings moral strength to us, and we need moral strength in this nation. Your home must be different. To say that we are lacking moral strength in modern America might be the understatement of the day. But a movement of homes who know the Bible and obey it can begin to move the needle. The problem is, is a group of 70 or 80 or 100 homes in our church willing to change, to be different. The point of these last nine messages and this tenth one is not that you can get in here and say, yeah, brother, let them have it. It's so that you go out there and can start doing it. We need homes who will declare like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will what? brings finally meaningful stability to that country. Moral strength will be the reward for a nation, but meaningful stability. The hope we have as a nation rests upon the homes of our nation. Stability does not come from better politicians, though I'm sure we could benefit slightly from those, but that's not where stability comes from. It comes from better people. Politics is always downstream of what the home is. By the way, Media is always downstream of what the home is. What you're seeing, the filth that you're seeing on TV, is because of the filth that's allowed in homes. Yeah. <gasps> I didn't say yours, per se. I hope not. But it might be good for you to go home and look in the spiritual mirror and make sure it's not. Your home, living and sharing your faith, humbly seeking the Lord, being confident and caring as you engage this fallen world, can bring stability to our corner of the nation. If we could get but a thousand or ten thousand churches like ours to decide that the, in their homes that they will be different, building their lives upon the Word of God, this country will change. Amen. I just don't see it. It's because you don't believe it. We don't have to be enraged over, over every real or perceived wrong that is done to us. We don't have to stoke the flames of victimhoods or rights deprivations. If something is biblically wrong, then oppose it. Speak articulately. Speak eloquently. Speak succinctly to whomever needs to be spoken to, and then move to work in grace to uphold your Christian values. We do not need more protesters. We need more professors of Jesus Christ to live their life for Jesus Christ. The summer of rage in 2020, the capital protests of 2021, the militant groups that permeate and populate both extremes of political ideology are really no different. <gasps> People, right or wrong, perceive that their voices aren't heard, and instead of tangibly changing things, they scream, they yell, they curse, and break the law in many instances. We have lost the rational ability to reason and relate to our fellow man. Be ye kind one to another. Tender 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Those words are as real today as they've ever been. To Timothy, Paul wrote these words. Do good to all men. Well, I don't like this one. This guy is on the alt-right, or he's on the alt-left. And I would say, let's just all get rid of both of them. You and you want to be a seeker, Pastor? I want to be a biblicist. If we would just have Christians stop watching 24 hours of ginned-up enthusiasm, and, by the way, it's not just Republicans. It's Christians of the Democratic sort. It's Christians of the Republican sort. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. The point is, we allow ourselves to be caught up in the sway of the moment, and we don't remember simple Bible values. Stability. Stability will not come through politics or party affiliation. It will come through godly people with a genuine heart. Again, I quote George Washington, our first president. However, he says, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. In other words, the parties will ultimately ruin the parties, and they've done it. Pastor, are you turning in the Republican card? Sure. Most of them don't vote the way or think the way I do. They just come and cater to me. Now, I'm not saying the other party's any better. Sometimes we just have to pick the lesser of two evils when we go to the ballot box. Here's what President Washington went on to say. He said, let me now warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party. The common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it in the interest and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another. In government purely elective, it is the spirit not to be encouraged. President Washington literally could have walked right in here and said what I just said. The question is, do you believe it? Let us leave these thoughts then on what we should teach our families about other families from our founding fathers. What should I teach my family about other families? How do I keep myself sane and stable in our modern world? Again, one last word from our founding father himself, President Washington. Be American, he said. In fact, this was in his last or his uh, farewell address. Be Americans, he said. Let there be no sectionalism, no north, south, east, or west. You are all dependent on one another and should be one in union. In one word, be a nation. Be American. Closing this morning, God wants your homes to be different. The core question, as I put in your notes from this series, is do you? Well, well, Pastor, I think we've picked up that you want us to be different. Well, sure, I want my home to be different, but that's the only one I'm in charge of. 
By the way, I'm going to go to heaven someday, and I'm going to give an account for all the souls in this church that I have an under-shepherding role in your life. And I'm going to say to them, God, I warned them, and I warned them, and I warned them, and I warned them, and I warned them. And God's going to say, well, they listened, and they listened, and they listened. Well done. Or he's going to say, they didn't listen, they didn't listen, they didn't listen. Well, you're done. Men must be biblical men, husbands and fathers. Women must be biblical women, wives and mothers. Children must honor and obey their parents, while parents are charged with directing their lives consistently so as to not provoke them to wrath, and compassionately. We must be clear in our distinctions in entertainment, ethics, and education, building into our homes always an eternal view of things. If Christian homes would live and practice True Bible living. Our country, our culture, our church, and most especially our Savior Jesus Christ would be rewarded beyond our belief. Do you believe that your efforts bring reward? Sometimes in the Christian life we don't believe that we will be rewarded or that there's any reward for doing what's right. And the Bible has taught us there is a reward. If we will humbly seek his face, he will heal us. He will answer from heaven, and he will heal our homes, and he heals our lives. Father, help us.